Hi, I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. And this is George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. The show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. In today's show, Alex and I will give you a peek into the world of the most popular food on Earth and in space. We'll meet with two pioneers in the world of food sustainability. We'll chat with one man who's dedicated his life's work to land conservation and protecting the future for our community and our farmers. And, you know, it's not sitting down at the kitchen table with someone, whether a farmer or they own, you know, a a lot of woodland or something and and saying, oh, gee, this is nice. Would you give it to us? (laughs) But actually understanding that 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 is their equity. But first, we'll meet a NASA scientist who is leading the way in developing nutritious yet tasty food options for future astronauts as they face longer, more arduous missions in outer space. It's time to come together on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. In recent years, the objectives of our nation's space program have grown increasingly sophisticated and ambitious. Future missions will focus on exploration at greater distances from Earth and extended stays in space. To ensure that these goals are achieved, NASA's astronauts must be able to perform at peak productivity under the most daunting conditions. The Human Research Program, known as HRP, is dedicated to discovering the best methods and technologies to support productive human space travel. From the challenges of providing appetizing food and optimal nutrition to managing the environmental risks posed by radiation and lunar dust, HRP scientists and engineers work to predict, assess, and solve the problems that humans encounter in space. Planned future missions will dramatically increase the scope of the challenges and demands that face NASA's astronauts. Joining us is Dr. Grace Douglas, lead scientist for NASA's Advanced Food Technology Research Effort, which focuses on determining methods, technologies, and requirements for developing a safe, nutritious, and palatable food system that will promote astronaut health during long-duration space missions. Her responsibilities include assessing the risk of an adequate food system to crew based on vehicle design and mission concept, and developing the research path that will ensure the food system meets crew health requirements on spaceflight vehicles. She holds degrees in food science from Penn State and North Carolina State University and a PhD in functional genomics from North Carolina State University. Welcome, Dr. Douglas. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Alex and myself are both immensely intrigued with with your work and the the work of NASA. And I kind of grew up in this. My father worked on the LEM missions. Uh, Myself, with my culinary background, I was executive chef to the chairman of the board of Grumman and had access to all the top Grumman tier individuals, including... The, the main Grumman person who was responsible for bringing Apollo 13 home. So we cherish your work. We cherish your, your diligence and what you do every day. But what I have to start off and ask is, how did you get involved with space? Well, it was something that I wanted to do since I was very young. And I actually had thought when I was very young, well, somebody has to feed the astronauts. And so I looked into what that would be. And uh, so food scientists work on food systems that can be stabilized for a long time. So basically the safety um, of food systems, the shelf life of food systems, the engineering, the chemistry behind those systems to make sure that we're providing safe foods with long shelf lives for um, 
here on Earth as well for a lot of different people. So that's why we have such an amazing food system even here on Earth. Food scientists are behind all of that. And so um, that's basically how I got involved. It was just I looked into how what it would take to be part of feeding astronauts in spaceflight. Now, it's come a long way since uh, Tang, right? Um, what are some of the what, what are some of the work that you're, you're you're doing at this at this moment? So, we we have come a long way from the tubes and cubes of of the Mercury and the Gemini missions, and it, and mm. the food systems advanced over every vehicle system. Now, on the current International Space Station missions, there is a variety of foods that's provided to the crew. And it's in a, it, it's provided to them in more of a pantry style menu, so they get to choose what they want, and there's a lot of variety. But most of the foods are launched on resupply vehicles, so not with the crew, so they're not actually picking what goes into all of those foods. We always have to have a supply up ahead of crew, so uh, most of our food launches as part of a standard food supply. They do get some preference foods that they get to choose for their mission duration. Um, and it, within those, there's some commercial foods, and then there's also potentially some more of the standard foods. And what we try to do is make sure we're providing the nutrition uh, that has that shelf life within a very acceptable variety. And so one of the things that we look at with HRP is how do we make sure that that's also going to work for long duration missions? Mm-hmm. How are we going to make sure that's going to work as our resources become more restricted? Because food takes up a lot of mass. It's actually one of the biggest resource challenges. And so uh, within food research, we look at how do we first off work with the current system that we have that we know is safe, that we know is reliable. If, it, if it's there, we test the safety on earth um, and we can provide that nutrition for our crew. How do we get that to have a shelf life that we might need for a Mars mission, which could be up to five years? And so we look at other technologies, new um, new technologies for processing and packaging that might help extend that system. In addition to that, we also look at how could we potentially reduce the mass of that system. And we can do that by looking at are there ways to create some calorically dense meals that still meet nutritional requirements that the crew still wants to eat? Because (laughs) it doesn't matter what nutrition you provide. If they don't like it, if it's not acceptable, they don't eat enough or they might not eat it at all. So they're not going to get that nutrition. And then uh, one of the other things, we, we have a lot of researchers that work with us, and we work with um, Kennedy Space Center on this part. Uh, they they look at plant systems. How do we start incorporating those over time, especially as we go on long-duration missions? Right now, they get resupply fairly regularly on the International Space Station. And within those resupplies, they'll get some fresh produce. And that can happen every couple of months. So it might not be a lot, but still. Oh, it is that frequent. Wow. Yes. Every two to three months now, they might get some fresh foods like apples or oranges, which is, you know, it's not very frequent, but it's frequent enough that, you know, if you're on a Mars mission and you go for several years and you don't have that, that's a huge difference. And so uh, if we can provide some fresh produce that they can grow, even if it's just pick and eat, produce, like, uh, you know, some salad crops, that would still be a benefit. So how do we start incorporating that in a safe way? Um, so, so those are the kinds of things that we look at. And, you know, beyond that, there's, there's other systems that could be used in the future, um, you know, that could end up being incorporated, but there's just a lot of challenges. You have to look across all of the resources when you're looking at those sorts of things. 
um, you know, what kind of water supplies you would need, what kind of, you know, uh, what it's going to do to the air quality, how the crew would interact with that system. You know, we'll have groups come in and say, uh, you know, we have this new idea and it could provide all the nutrition, but it would be something that on Earth might actually be very interesting because you have um, food experts working in a plant who are producing an ingredient that then goes and gets used by another food company in part of a food product. It might be a very nutritious ingredient, but nobody sees the process except the food experts and nobody sure. sees, you know, the 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 um, whole process to get it to that acceptable food product that becomes very nutritious and acceptable. And so that process can be long. It can be challenging. It can, you know, have have factors that are difficult to do and maybe don't produce foods that look that palatable along the way, but that works in a, in a big food industry in, in a um, system where you have explorers you want to make sure that you're thinking, what do you want to do in your own kitchen? At the end of a day where you've already worked, do you want to go do another science experiment to produce your dinner? Or do you want to go and find food that you know is going to be familiar and comforting and really enjoyable after already doing that work all day? So you have to actually dial in, so to speak, on even comfort foods individually for each astronaut as well. Well... Our goal is always to provide lots of variety. So we hear variety is important. It's a closed system. As much variety as we can that will provide choice for nutrition within that closed system. And we can on the International Space Station provide some crew choice. But the goal is to provide what is acceptable to most people. What do most people want? So that there would be comfort foods in there. There's going to be the nutrition they need in there. That different individuals will be able to find what they want. Because we're planning these most of the food we have to send ahead of even assignment. So that can be, a, you know, that, that's a big challenge. If you have a product that works really well on earth and mm -hmm. you have, you know, a few percent of customers who really want that product, you can do fairly well. But if you're, if you have a few percent of astronauts who really want that product, you're in trouble. So uh, it's really figuring out how to find a good variety that a lot of people would find acceptable and and trying to figure that out and and that can definitely that's one of our big challenges you'll have crews who really like something and then another crew who wonders why you sent that because you know nobody on that crew ate it <laughs> then the next crew goes up and then they like that again it's, like and so that can be it's in the back of the challenge. fridge <laughs> it's that physiological psychological push-pull right with the astronauts yes. yeah um yeah, yeah. so I understand all the mechanics that might go behind your research, but how is it executed within the astronauts? Are they tested while they're here on Earth before they go up that this is what they're going to be eating for the next six months or a year or like you say with Mars, five years? So our crew do come in before their missions and they try all the foods and we work with them on their the preference that they do get. So they get that experience. They get the experience to have that to have with the food. The challenge would be that this is a closed system. And so that's why variety becomes very important because yeah. even if you like that system, there's a menu fatigue aspect. So if you're eating the same things over and over and there's not other choices over time, that can be a challenge. So we, we do research into how can we keep 
um, crew interested in eating over time. And so a lot of times we don't always get to do that research directly with crew because we only have a certain number of crew members and there's a lot of things that we need to do. But there are analog missions too, so ground simulations of spaceflight Mm -hmm. missions where NASA will find – um, astronaut-like individuals who are who want to participate and help our and help out with the research side, so that we can provide um, better countermeasures for crews, so that our missions are more successful. And they will do ground simulation missions where we can do things like test out food systems and look, you know, actually over time, because that is the really big challenge. We do sensory evaluations in our lab where we have individuals from around the Johnson Space Center come in and do regular sensory panels for all of our foods, and that happens very frequently. But if somebody likes something in the moment, it doesn't mean they're going to want it tomorrow and then yeah, next week sure, again sure. and then you know, every months. week for the next year. <laughs> so trying to say, okay, within this closed system, if I take something out of this box because you know certain people might not want it, and to put something else in, I still might have taken out someone's favorite. So how do we we make we put the right mix in that box that's going to be the most likely to succeed? And so trying to test those out over analogs can definitely help us because we can get repeat measures um, on those food systems, and it can tell us are these really acceptable to be consumed for long amounts of time? Do they support the health and performance that we're looking for in relevant um, groups of people? So. Uh, I had a question, Dr. Douglas. What is the actual food itself like? Is this like camping meals? Are they like military-style meals? Is everything freeze-dried? Like I always think of the astronaut ice cream when you're a kid and it's like that styrofoamy kind of ice cream sandwich. Do they have any hot meals? Is there texture to it? So right now, um, they they have the, the foods that they're getting are freeze-dried and retort thermostabilized, so basically canned food. Now, we send it in a pouch. Um, and we have international partners who send foods in cans, so they get you know some variety there. We send it in pouches to save on resources, and so the the freeze dried foods we make they're 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 made from high quality ingredients. They're they're just like foods that you would expect if it's mac and cheese. It's it's like mac and cheese really? to add that water back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so on the International Space Station, they have hot water, ambient water. A chiller, it's a very small chiller, so the food stored ambient, but then they have a small chiller that they could chill something in or a beverage in. And then they have a food warmer. So it's basically a small oven that doesn't heat up very hot, but it'll warm these foods that are already ready to eat. So they just have to add water and heat. And then they cut open each package and they eat right out of it. Everything's an individual serving. Okay, so they and got so some we hot have a meals. variety of vegetables and fruits and meats and and other products for them. And they do get some commercially available items, especially things like, you know, if there's cookies or candies or um, items that we only develop where there's a gap. And we also need to meet certain nutritional recommendations. So a lot of processed foods on the market are high in sodium or fats, and we do have to meet certain limitations. So, and there's not actually a lot of types of freeze-dried foods um, freeze-dried vegetables, you know, on on the market. So even <laughs> yeah. as far as camping food, right? Yep. Especially low sodium. And so those are the kinds of the things where we find ways, how do we make this really acceptable? So we'll use different spice combinations, different combinations of products to to provide what you would expect. And we try to keep development going so we're eating like we would expect to eat today. So you'll find foods that you might expect today um, to try and keep that 
that crew interest in the food system. It's very important that they maintain consumption over time, and this is an issue. Historically, on closed systems, people lose weight. This happens in the military. It happens in the history of exploration. It happens in space exploration. And when you're losing weight in space flight, it can be even worse because you also lose bone and muscle mass. Mm. And so we want to definitely make sure that they want to eat, that they're eating enough, that um, they're getting the nutrients they need. If they avoid a specific group of foods, that could also be an issue, not only for them, but their crewmates. Because if they're eating more in another group, yeah. that restricts that other group to their crewmates. So the goal is really how do we provide the best mix and the best mix that everyone's going to eat that variety, get that variety of nutrition, but still have some choice. They don't have to eat every single thing on that's provided. How far in advance is your work and research? That Are you planning for missions that are six months out, a year out, years out? So the International Space Station is already completely in working order. You know, if we develop something, it can go into the International Space Station system. But that food gets produced, packaged, and stowed continually. And so that will actually, though, end up um, through the process of being produced, packaged, and stowed and having all those different foods in that system, it does have a pretty long lead time. So, you know, you could be you could be looking at six months lead time, a year lead time, depending on the food or the mission. And then by the time that it gets to the launch site, it, it's, it's months in advance of a launch. And then it gets launched to the International Space Station. And then there's time because we always have to have provisions ahead of the crew. Yeah. There's a, you know, it, it, it'll be up there for several months before it gets consumed. And so that's how the International Space Station works. Now, as far as the research, what we're looking mm -hmm. for. So we do research for upcoming missions for Artemis, so for the lunar program. So how are we going to best support those missions? They have different profiles. You know, resources are restricted in different ways. Um, preparation capabilities are going to be different. And so how do we provide the best food system to meet those missions? And then also for long duration exploration, Mars is the biggest challenge because we're going to be so far from Earth uh, with the challenges of planetary physics. There's only certain times you can even launch items from Earth, launch supplies from Earth. So uh, we might end up having to preposition some foods. Those foods could be several years old before they start being consumed and five years old by the time the mission's completing. And that's the entire system is that old at that point. Um, so we need to make sure that we're providing the nutrition that they need over those long durations and that it's still also very acceptable. So that's the kind of research we're trying to um, work on figuring out how do we get a food system that meets those requirements? Because right now we don't have a food system that meets those requirements. Now we are looking at, will cold storage provide a five-year shelf life for everything that we have? So we are looking at that. But even so, we the only system that has had cold storage so far is um, the Skylab missions because cold storage takes a lot of resources. And so... There's no guarantee that we're going to have cold stowage for any or all of the food system. And that's actually one of the gaps is how do we get really efficient cold stowage on future missions? So there's engineering groups who are working on that challenge. Uh, so it's likely we are going to need some cold stowage to meet those shelf life durations. And so that is a challenge. How do we meet it within those resources? Thank you for joining us, Grace. This information has just been Amazing. And it's so deep and it's so much out there. 
I encourage everyone to go and look at nasa.gov slash HRP for uh, additional information on all of Dr. Douglas's work. Dr. Douglas is the lead scientist for NASA's Advanced Food Technology Research Effort. Again, nasa.gov slash HRP for some of our groundbreaking work. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Freeze-dried food is not just reserved for space exploration. It's used for backpacking, camping, military rations, and survival food storage. The history and market for this technology were invented in 1906 at the Collège de France in Paris. Since then, freeze-drying has become one of the most essential processes for preserving heat-sensitive biological materials. During the 1950s, industrial freeze-drying began and is currently used as a preservation method for foods, pharmaceuticals, and a wide range of other products. Common processed foods are coffee, juice, vegetables, herbs, food flavoring, seafood, eggs, and dairy, with fruits comprising the most considerable portion of freeze-dried foods. Earlier freeze-drying techniques were costly due to their high energy consumption. But today, pre-treatments such as osmotic dehydration, ultrasound, and infrared heating shows the potential to save energy and cost. In addition, the final product quality is significantly improved and can retain up to 98% of its nutritional value. And that's good to know. The planet is in peril, and it's clear that we cannot restore it without transforming our food system. We can all make changes to our diet and help us eat healthy and sustainably in a way which is good for both us and for the environment. Currently, 75% of the world's food comes from just 12 plant and 5 animal species. It's essential that we change our eating habits to ensure we protect our planet while feeding the growing global population. According to the UK's-based World Wildlife Fund, beets are listed in the top 50 foods for healthier people and a healthier planet along with other leafy greens such as spinach, watercress, broccoli, rob, and kale. The leafy green part of the beetroot is the most nutritious part of the plant and is often overlooked and left unused. Hey, Alex, did you know beets have been used to cure hangovers? <laughs> and also make port wine? Yeah, I, I knew both of those things. I actually, I like drinking beet juice whenever I'm either, it, it doesn't have to even be a hangover if you're just feeling a little bit run down, beet juice just brings me back. But that's actually because beet juice is super antioxidant rich, so right. it cleanses the liver and the blood. So that could be why when you're hungover, beet juice helps you out. That's kind of good to know. Uh, another good part, and this has nothing to do with the digestive part of beet juice, but it also heals dandruff. Did that you? I didn't know. I'm wearing a black T-shirt today too. I hope that you're not trying to tell me something. <laughs> Well, the beta vulgaris is the common species of beet, and its own roots can trace back to ancient Mesopotamia. That was interesting to me, but there's something that I wanted to get into here in the world of beets real quick if we're talking about heirloom and ancient varietals of beets, and that would be the Chiogia beet, which is named from a town in northern Italy of the same name. I believe it was first cultivated in the 1500s. When you cut open one of these Kyogia beets, those are the ones where you see the circles and the spirals of white and pink. And I think that that is such a good indication that the beets are just another 
vegetable of the universe. Because whenever you see those concentric circles and you see spiraling, it makes you think of both the micro and the macro, right? I mean, our DNA spirals all the way up to the cosmos where you have galaxies that spiral and they spiral and go out infinitely from a central point. Uh, we see spirals and concentric circles in all levels of nature. But so are, you, are you getting to hear that beats might have come from areas beyond? Well, I think all of it comes from areas beyond. You do? Yeah, but I don't think that beats are some type of reverse-engineered alien technology. I just think that when you see spiral patterns in nature, usually it means that that plant is a hardier plant because when something grows in a spiral from the center, it kind of locks itself in from the inside and then grows to the outside, but it keeps that core of strength. And beets, as we know, are one of the hardiest vegetables. I think that's why when you're talking about changing the way we view food globally, this is something that kind of grows year-round, really does well in colder climates and colder weather, and also lasts forever, right? I mean, beets... It, it, it lasts forever in cool storage, ideally about uh, 60, 65 degrees. But when you, when you think about like the world consumption in food and you think of the production, uh, you have, you know, Russia... Uh, leading, leading the the beet production in the world, and you can know. I mean, you know how cold it is in Russia. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there's even seen. I think Dr. Zhivago, where you know he he farms you know the beets and it keeps them keeps them healthy all winter long. Not only has it done well here on Earth, but it's also been used as a food staple on the International Space Station since like 2004. Well, I mean, that makes sense because it's so versatile too, right? I mean, you can pickle it, you can shave it, you can steam it, you can roast it, you can boil it. You, you can, can borscht it. it. Yeah, you can borscht it. You can borscht it, which yeah. means you just throw everything in the pot. You... But what you could also do that many people who are home cooks might not realize is you can powder it and take it in pill form. So it makes sense that it's on the space station because when you take any type of a beet supplement and in the workout world, I know that they're becoming very popular for pre-workout drinks. It actually elevates nitric oxide levels in the blood. So you get increased blood flow. You're getting more oxygen to muscles faster. You're getting more oxygen to the brain faster. Beets are actually a brain food for that reason too. Well, I mean it's – you know beets are – Excellent from a, from a health standpoint, but let's let's talk about um, the digestive and 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 the appeal. And I'm not speaking about like the old bad rap of beets, you know, in the cafeteria line from a number ten can that was poured out, and they taste like. I don't know, poker chips, like soft poker chips. Well, I think there might be more to that than just the fact that some of those are bad canned beets that taste like poker chips. And it actually goes into a little bit of science. So people either seem to love or hate beets. And I always just thought maybe it's the quality of beets. Maybe somebody made you a beet and they're a terrible cook. Maybe they had old beets and they don't know how to process them properly. Because I know that you and I, we cook beets all the time. And I love deep beets that we make. I've gone to dinner parties and had beet salads that were terrible. But in my research, what I found out was beet peels are rich in a substance called geosmin. This is responsible for their earthy smell as well as the earthy odor that comes from streams, beans, fresh rainfall, and also beets. The human nose is extremely sensitive to geosmin, even in very, very small amounts. 
And some people just hate that smell and odor. It's like cilantro. But a beet, let's say grown on Sepp's farm in East Marion, mm-hmm. and we have we have definitely, <laughs> yeah, definitely had truckloads of their beets. Yeah. The taste of the earth that you'll get in the beets from there will taste different than they will, let's say, from Deer Run up in Brookhaven. Yeah, absolutely. To New Jersey. The earth is different and the flavors are different and the components are different. So that that is an impact. So I think um, the same way they label oysters on where they're from, I think the beet people should kind of get together on that and start labeling where their beets are from. Put the geo-tracking on those beets wherever they're shipped to. Or artisanal localized beets. Yes. You could have beet tastings. Do blind beet tastings. So the only thing that I'm doing here uh, as a beet lover myself is trying to cut some slack for people who claim that they don't like beets. And I'll say that there's a scientific reason for that. Yeah. I think beets are important too because I think that their health benefits are really understated. And I actually have a personal story about this in my own family. So you were talking earlier about how Russia is the largest beet producing nation in the world, right? That's right. And where do you think is number two in that? I was shocked to learn this. I have no idea because I think number three is the U.S. Three is the U.S. Two is France. Oh, that's really shocking. Isn't that, you know? Number four, I can kind of see. Four was Germany. Well, France number two really surprised me. Yeah, that's where I was going with this story. So, yeah, my German grandfather, when he grew up, He actually grew up in Russia, but his family was German and they came from Germany and Russia had this this plan where they brought German farmers in to grow crops because they were really in need of farmers and they had famine Mm -hmm. issues. So anyone who had knowledge of farming apparently like moved there. So my grandfather and his family lived in this small Russian town, but they were Germans and they were like a German community within Russia and they were beet farmers. So for all of his formative years, he would tell me stories about, you know, in the wintertime in Russia, farming for beets without shoes. And, you know, he went through the war and everything, then moved to America, and he lived to be in his 90s. And, you know, this is a man who drank a little vodka, liked to have a nice room temperature beer and smoked unfiltered cigarettes and lived to his 90s. And I think that a big part of that is having the first 17 years of his life be a beet-heavy diet. I thought you were going to say he did beet shots. Well, I mean, I think they ate a lot of borscht on that farm. I, you know, I don't think that they had the, they weren't going to grocery it was, stores. It was survival. I'm sure they did. Yeah. I'm sure they did. What if I said there was a way to conserve our lands, water, and community for the benefit of all, support working farms and agriculture as it evolves over time? What if I said, care for our land and water in ways that sustain, restore, and protect. Assure the permanence of conservation for future generations. What if I said, build connections between a diverse community with our agriculture, nature, and historic resources? Could this be done? It already has since 1983. In 1983, 
John Halsey and a small group of local residents banded together to ensure the protection of Long Island's working farms, natural lands, and heritage. Since 83, the Peconic Land Trust has worked diligently with landlords, communities, municipalities, and partner organizations to protect over 13,000 acres of land, conserving more working farms on Long Island than any other private conservation organization, and securing millions of dollars from the public and private sector for land protection. Joining us is John Halsey, founder, president, Peconic Land Trust. John, welcome. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's great to have you. I saw the other day when I was uh, looking at some of the most recent activities from Peconic Land Trust, I go onto your website, and I see that picture of you back in 1983 pointing to the map of the region with Patrick Halpin. Patrick Halpin, who was our county executive supervisor at the time, and I, you can tell your side from his vision with Peconic Land Trust and supporting you. But what he was responsible for with myself from a food-related is he supported the Champion of Breakfast program, which later became a national program with the USDA. Please, tell us, tell us a little bit about that day of that moment. I think Pat Halpin really appreciated uh, some of the things that were done before him as well. And, and, and talking about firsts, uh, the first purchase of development rights program in the country was started here in, in Suffolk County. A real partnership between county government and farmers and uh, very, very uh, foresighted because farmers were experiencing huge development pressure as the real real estate values skyrocketed. So people who had inherited farms um, over generations all of a sudden found themselves with a big tax bill mm-hmm. and, and really no, no easy way to pull that equity out. But, but the purchase of development rights program created a vehicle to um, recover, if you will, the equity in the land without actually having to sell it to a developer. And that was a brilliant concept. And, and uh, so we worked very closely with Pat Help and, and, and all the, the county uh, executives since to further that program, as well as other acquisitions, you know, uh, watershed protection. So we were, we were able to, in some instances, leverage private money to contribute to these, some of these public acquisitions but uh, also act quickly, uh, quicker right. than government, to be able to make, make deals and, and close them and then have the land either at the closing acquired by the county or even after we've had acquired it, then they might acquire it from us as well. So I, all kinds of different uh, permutations, <laughs> you know, because every situation is different. and Every right. parcel of land, the ownership is different. So you always have to – they're all puzzles, all these, these projects. Now, the, uh, the, the picture back then, let's say, of the farms, you know, were kind of coming out of potato farms, which necessarily there was not a lot of revenue in some of these farms to be able to offset these taxes. You know, it's not like the grand vineyards that we see today and all these specialty farms and markets, right, right Alex? Yeah, vineyards, uh, I would imagine, are probably pretty profitable now compared to a potato farm in the 80s. Because uh, from the stories that we've learned in, in all our dealings with the local farmers, and I'm sure you know, is it was that horror story where they loaded up their trucks, they took it to market, 
And uh, yesterday's agreed price was a different price when they got into market. So what is the mission and goals of the Peconic Land Trust for those that aren't familiar? Well, um, you, you actually hit the nail on the head when you read the mission statement. And, and that's really to, to um, conserve our working farms, natural lands, and heritage uh, for, for our communities now and in the future. I mean, it, the, the uh, tremendous development pressure here, the people want to be here. It's, it's a very special part of the world. It's finite. It's, it's the end of the island. So the, the pressures are enormous. They're, they're really, from my perspective, needed to be an organization that would work from a problem-solving perspective with landowners to identify and implement alternatives to, to development. And, and, you know, it's not sitting down at the kitchen table with someone, whether a farmer or they own, you know, a, a, a lot of woodland or something and, and saying, oh, gee, this is nice. Would you give it to us? <laughs> but <laughs> actually right. understanding that, that that is their equity. Um, a lot of land-rich, cash-poor people out here, especially as this real estate began to appreciate so rapidly. So you, you can't expect them just to give away all that equity. So you have to really drill down, understand what their goals, needs, and circumstances mm-hmm. are. And often you're dealing with families, so there are multiple goals, needs, and circumstances sure. that you're dealing with. And also understanding the land itself. You know, that most land is artificially divided. It's, it's a box that's been created out of circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. Sale over years. And that within any parcel of land, there are really areas that are really important to protect and conserve forever. There are areas that would be nice to do that if you could afford to of do course. it. And there may be areas where some limited development um, for future residences for family members, for example, you know, uh, can be identified. So it's never been an all or nothing proposition, but, but being pragmatic and, um, and understanding of both the land and the goals, needs, and circumstances of the landowners. So that's why I say everyone, every project is, right. is sort of a different puzzle. And you have to try to, you know, look at all the different resources to bring to bear, purchase of development rights, donations of, of conservation easements, um, bargain sale, uh, sales. So that's sales to the trust or to a municipality at less than fair market value where there's a gift plus a return uh, of, of their equity. So it's looking at all these different tools and, and assembling what works best in a particular situation. Were you able to learn or exchange from many other areas in the nation that oh, may have oh, experienced yes. the same things like, let's say, the Monterey Peninsula or up in Nantucket? Oh, or ab- Absolutely. Um, so in 1983, I had moved back from the West Coast and I uh, had been working as an organization development consultant, working with nonprofits um, on behalf of the San Francisco Foundation, a large mm-hmm. community foundation serving five counties out there, the Bay Area. And so I had a lot of experience with nonprofits, but I also started to do outreach to other land trusts. I mean, why reinvent the wheel? I didn't know about the specifics of conservation. So coming back here, I created the vehicle, but I got tremendous guidance and support from the land trust community. And in 1982, just prior to our creation, 
something called the land trust exchange was created. And these were, the, these were leaders of other land trusts, experienced land trusts, who were seeing a proliferation of these new organizations and saying, huh, I wonder if they know what they're doing. Because <laughs> <laughs> if they don't do this right, it could get messy. So they, they created this land trust ex- exchange as a means to work with new land trusts. And they were invaluable to me. And that organization, which was a fledgling organization like me, which has now evolved into, um, you know, an organization that's called now the Land Trust Alliance. And, um, and now I'm in a different position there. I'm able to uh, share my, my experience um, and the wisdom I've accumulated over the years with newer land trusts. But I, I, there, this is a very generous uh, community with their expertise and that's been a, a real pleasure and, and gratification is working mm-hmm. with land trusts all over the country. They look at the situation that we're facing here right. and often say, what? <laughs> <laughs> what did you say the value say of land is there? You know, well, it already appreciated during this interview. It's gone up another 10%. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> well, you've done remarkable work um, within your organization of preserving and saving farms and agriculture, aquaculture, woodlands. Um, But there's also a flavorful side that the community is able to participate with, with your your activities. Uh, Share some of those. Well, I mean, I I think we're we're all the beneficiaries of the diversification of agriculture, you know, uh, as you noted. The diversity of of, uh, production out here – and particularly in food production, um, is just amazing, and uh, and 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 we just benefit from all of that. And and I think it's somewhat unusual when you, when you think about agriculture. There are pockets of places, the Hudson Valley, and right. uh, you know that where you've got this kind of diversification uh, that's happening. And of course, it's a shift from wholesale to retail with farm stands and farmers markets sales direct to restaurants, CSAs. And community gardens. Let's, community not, let's gardens. not forget that. It's a, you know, a, Bridge a, Gardens, yes, Quail Hill, absolutely. all those magnificent a, a, a plethora of, of di- different uh, types of, of farms and uh, family-run fa- farms, uh, multi-generation farms, new farms. So the trust has really tried to do whatever we can to facilitate that. So we have an incubator program. Um, with new farmers, some are young and some are old, <laughs> second, second <laughs> uh, career people. So you've got, you know, you've got just this, uh, this sort of place where a lot of people are trying new things. We have a, um, a, a fellow uh, who's, who's uh, raising um, snails, escargot. I read about him actually. <laughs> and I think one important thing that the Peconic Land Trust does that doesn't jump off the page right away is you're really preserving the character of the East End because if everything just gets developed, what's the point in coming out here? Uh, so much of the diversity of these farms and the fact that they're such great places to visit is what makes us what we are out here. Is Was that part of your vision in the beginning to make sure that of this course. stayed – yeah, absolutely. I mean, where I grew up, I, I was surrounded by potato fields in Southampton Village between 
the hospital in Meacox Bay, there was about a thousand acres of farmland. And, wow. um, and now there might be 150 acres left of that thousand. And um, I mean, when I saw the farm literally next door uh, sold because of federal estate taxes, um, that, that was really the catalyst for me. I was still living on the West Coast to, to uh, you know, to, to create an organization that would work to retain uh, the special characteristics of this area. So community characters uh, always been a, uh, a driving force because this, these are all places that you love, I love, uh, we love, and it, it just requires a lot of hard work. It's, all, it's piece by piece to, uh, as the opportunity presents itself and outreach to people before it's a necessarily apparent that there is an opportunity. And, and patience, uh, approaching people um, and, and throwing a, a lot at them about options and then, whoa, okay, I need some time to think about this. Um, but we, and we have a broker who's banging down the door over here. Um, (laughs) so you have to, you have to, um, sometimes you have to plant a seed and it may take five or 10 years, um, for, for someone to come back and say, okay, we're ready. We, we were looking at these other options and we didn't like them. So let's let's talk again. Now now we understand more how how you work and how how you can help us. Well, John, our region is just so blessed that you planted these seeds 40 years ago. And um it's touching, it's humbling that um your work has benefited so many people and you know, I thank you personally for that. Yeah, I agree with George. I grew up in Hampton Bays and the preservation of of the life that we have out here and the reason why I enjoy living out here as an adult is because of people like you preserving what the East End is all about. So thank you. It's my pleasure. And it's many hands that make it possible. I, I it's it's not me any longer. I I, I created the vehicle and now now a lot of, of donors and great staff and a great board that that keep it going. Thank you, John. That was John Halsey, founder of Peconic Land Trust. To learn more about the trust, visit PeconicLandTrust.org. For more food, culture, and lifestyle tips, guest interviews, and updates, visit WLIW.org slash radio and ChefGeorgeHirsch.com. And join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WIWFM and at George Hirsch. The world of beats can be actually fun. Do you remember the uh, show The Office? Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's funny. The Office. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> so uh, I, I actually tripped over this and Dwight from The Office. Who's my favorite character. Yes. He's unbelievable. He promoted. Now, this this is from a, a, a marketing point, you know, and I think this is for the fun of Beats, but his 
the first rule in roadside beat sales. You know, got all these farm set yeah, stands so all around here, and you pull up. over, and sunflowers <laughs> everywhere, and woo, yep. you know, people from the city come out, they get them, and they bring them back. Okay, so this is I'm throwing this out to all our farmer friends, and I think they should jump on this right now. Is put the most attractive beats on top because that's going to make the cars pull over right <laughs> off the road and say, wow, I need this beat right now. Oh, my God. Scramble. Get to it before it's gone. And those are the money beats. Yeah. Those the, are the money beats. And, that's, and that was Dwight's That is one quote. of my favorite Dwight Schrute quotes. Yeah. That so that's is. one part about the fun of, 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 of beats. But there's many other layers. Now, you know I've done a lot of traveling. And when you doing a lot of promotional stuff. You'll do the circuits and the book tours and such, but you also do the festivals. Yeah. So you, you have in uh, uh, Stockton, you have the asparagus festival. Okay. So they make everything out of asparagus, fried, boiled, margaritas, you name it. Uh, a little down the road in, in Gilroy, Gilroy, California, okay. it's garlic. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And on and on. You know, they have Iowa, they have this, corn this is your and potatoes. Idea of fun and is going to so I've done a lot of these festivals. festivals and I go in and, and it's 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 insane just how, you know, passionate everybody is. Yeah. So again I began to think and I said, Huh, do you think they have a beat festival? It sounded like you've already been to it, so I'm glad that no, you No, I All haven't. Right. <laughs> but there is our neighbors right across the water. It's only in Connecticut. They have a beat festival there once a year. Okay, just let me know when that is, and I'll see if I have room in my calendar for it. So these are these are these are fun times with beats. Fun times, good for you. So versatile, so easy to handle. Um, its history just goes back from the beginning of time, and. You know, it's been something from this planet all the way up into the universe. So. Well, we started this conversation and where it wound to is definitely different than where it began. But to bring it full circle, we were really concerned about basically quality of life on planet Earth, right? Mm-hmm. And how we have to change food production. And an interesting fact that I found was 20% of the world's sugar comes from sugar beets. But to turn a beet into sugar requires approximately four times less water than sugarcane production. So that, to me, just makes beets a very attractive crop to grow for sugar, especially in arid countries like Egypt, you know, more desert areas, but really anywhere in the world that's facing climate change and water shortages, let's start making more sugar out of beets. Why is it 20%? Let's get that number up. Let's bump that up. Let's get 60% of the world's sugar out of beets. Very well said, Alex. I'm reminded of an old gardening slogan from my parents' time popular during World War II when food was in short supply. Use it up, wear it out. Make it do or do without. Americans were encouraged to find resourceful ways in which to consume their produce. We did it then. We can do it now. I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. Our producer is Delaney Hafner, along with production support from Kyle Lynch. Supervising producer is Ali Gimble. George Hirsch and Diane Michelli are co-executive producers. George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio is a co-production of Hirsch Media and Audio Engagement Group, LLC. Thanks so much for tuning in to George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, the show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. For more episodes and our podcast, visit wiw.org radio. 
and chefgeorgehirsch.com and your favorite streaming and podcast platforms. We'll be back next week right here on 88.3 WIW-FM and streaming on wiw.org slash radio.